And God, for any who aren't, are here, Lord, and don't yet trust you, Lord, I pray that they would see how sweet it is to trust in Jesus. God, be with me. I pray that uh, this wouldn't be about me or my words, but ultimately, God, we would all just stand in awe of your word and your son this morning. I ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, I'm from Wisconsin, and uh, moving from the Midwest to California, there's some things that I used to have to worry about that I don't have to worry about anymore. So uh, frostbite. My uh, true story, okay, my school district didn't actually cancel school until it reached like negative 30, negative 35 below with wind chill. So don't have to really worry about frostbite anymore. I don't have to worry about tornadoes. I, uh, I remember as a kid, every Saturday, uh, at least I think it was once a month, but I remember it being every week at, at noon, they would do a, a test of the sirens and all the sirens would go off and me and my siblings would all sing and try to harmonize with the, <laughs> with the siren. But uh, plenty of times I had to go into, a, into my basement because we also have basements in the Midwest and uh, we uh, would, would stay down there because there was a tornado warning and the sirens were going off. I don't have to worry about tornadoes anymore, really. Um, but there are some things I have to worry about now that I didn't have to worry about before. Uh, I have to worry about droughts and, and apparently floods as well. <laughs> I have to worry about wildfires. I have to worry about all sorts of strange animals to a Midwesterner like sharks and, of course, mountain lions. Do you guys get mountain lions in Hollister? Do you have them down here as well? Okay, I figured. You know, so a true story, a couple of years ago in Orange County, there was a father hiking with his young son, like a toddler, okay, and out of nowhere, a mountain lion appeared and grabbed the little boy by the back of his neck and began to drag him away. I can't imagine the fear that this father must have felt in that moment, knowing his son's life was in such jeopardy. So what did, the, what did this dad do? Well, he did the only thing he could think to do in the moment. That was to whip off his backpack, throw it at the mountain lion, and then by some miracle, by the Lord's intervention, the mountain lion dropped the child, picked up the backpack, and then took the backpack up into a tree. And the son ended up being fine, he had only minor injuries and he recovered completely. This morning, we're gonna be in John chapter four. You're welcome to begin turning there. And in John chapter four, we're going to read about a fearful father whose son's life is in danger and he does the only thing he can think to do and that is to go to Jesus. But what we'll see this morning is that this father comes to Jesus with one kind of faith, one level of faith, and he leaves with a very different kind of faith. And so here's the the main point I want you to see this morning from John chapter 4. It's that real faith rests on Jesus himself. I'll say that again. Real faith rests on Jesus himself. In a moment, I'll begin reading in verse 43, but first I wanna wanna give you some context to to arrive where we're at this morning. So back in chapter two of the book of John, Jesus' ministry kind of went public for the first time, and that was uh, in the city of Cana, where where he turned uh, about 150 gallons of water into wine, miraculously. And so soon after that, Jesus and his disciples, they went to uh, Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and while Jesus was in Jerusalem, He cleared the temple. He drove out all these money changers and vendors. Uh, And then after that, his disciples, they they went into uh, the Samaritan village of Sychar, 
They went into the Samaritan region, into the village of Sychar, and there, beside a well, Jesus met with a Samaritan woman with a complicated, sinful past. But Jesus showed her that he was the Messiah, and she believed in him. And as a result of that, she, she went, she told the whole city of Sychar all about this Jesus, and Jesus stayed there an extra two days just sharing with the whole town who began to believe in him as well. And so that brings us to our passage this morning. Uh, if you want to turn down to verse 43, I'll begin reading in John chapter 4, verse 43. After two days, Jesus departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So let's stop there. I, I want to unpack these three verses here because they really set up the, the context. They really set the stage for the story to come. Verse 43 is pretty simple, right? After two days with the Samaritans, Jesus and his disciples, they, they departed for Galilee. But then in verses 44 and 45, it seems like we have this contradiction, okay? It's going to get uh, perhaps a little bit confusing, but just for a moment, I want to explain how this all makes sense. So verse 44, it says in this parenthetical statement, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So this word for hometown, it can also, broadly speaking, mean homeland. Jesus' hometown was, was Nazareth, but his homeland was Galilee, the region that he just traveled to. That's where Jesus is right now. He's in Galilee. And so this statement, it might sound familiar if you've read through the Gospels before, because it actually comes up in the other Gospels as well. But in each of those other cases in the Gospels, Jesus is, is in Nazareth, and he's referring to Nazareth. But here in the book of John... Jesus is talking about the region of Galilee as a whole. A prophet has no honor in his own hometown or his own homeland, Galilee. But here's the confusing part. You almost expect the verse after that to be something like, so when Jesus came to Galilee, the Galileans rejected him, right? That would, that would make sense. A prophet has no honor in his homeland. So you expect the next verse to be something about Jesus being rejected, but actually it's the opposite. It says, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. So what's going on here? You guys see what I mean about this, this contradiction that seems apparent at first? Well, let's talk about that. So what's going on here? How can these things both be true? That on one hand, a prophet, Jesus, has no honor in his homeland, and on the other hand, he seems to be welcomed by the Galileans when he arrives. Well, the answer is that the Galileans weren't truly welcoming Jesus as they should have. They didn't welcome him. They didn't honor him as they were supposed to. You see, they were honoring Jesus more like a magician than a Messiah. They saw Jesus more as a, a cool magician that does cool tricks than the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Let me show you what I mean. So, so first, we can see actually earlier in the book of John why the Galileans welcomed Jesus at all. And it's because they saw him perform signs and miracles at the feast of the Passover in Jerusalem not too long ago. If you look back at verse 45, it says, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So the Passover feast, it was a big deal. Jews came from all over the place to attend it, including Galilee. So these Jewish Galileans, they went to Jerusalem, and so 
while Jesus was in Jerusalem, uh, amongst other things like clearing out the temple, he also performed miraculous signs. If you have a Bible, you can, you can flip back a couple of pages to John chapter 2. In John 2, verse 23, it says, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So it seems positive at first, right? Uh, maybe they saw Jesus heal some paralytics or, or cast out demons or, or, or heal somebody. You know, they'd never seen anything like this before. This was miraculous. This was incredible. Surely they'll see that Jesus is the Messiah, right? Surely they'll, they'll reach that point, that conclusion. But the next two verses tell us what actually happens. It says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So all these people, they're in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. They see these signs, and it says that many believed in his name. They had some form of belief. They had some level of faith, perhaps, but, but this wasn't a saving faith. And we know that because in those verses I just read, it says Jesus did not entrust himself to them. So really, the Galileans, they, they believed in Jesus. They had a, a sort of faith in Jesus because of the cool stuff he did, but their faith never evolved past that point. It never grew beyond like, whoa, those are cool signs, Jesus. In other words, they saw Jesus more as a magician than as the Messiah because you see the signs were meant to lead the people of Israel to lead the world to see that Jesus is not just a guy who does cool miracles. He's the savior of the world who can save us from our sins and reconcile us back to God. But these Galileans, they missed the point. They had sign faith, not saving faith. So you know how uh, movie theaters, when you go to a movie theater, they've often got those big posters out front, and sometimes, you know, in the aisles as you're walking to your theater that, that advertise the movies, right? And they usually look pretty cool. They'll often have tons of explosions on them, you know, people with guns, you know, like, they're, they're meant to advertise the movie. They're meant to look super cool, right? Everyone's looking super hardcore. But imagine you and your friend or your spouse or whoever, you, you go to see a movie, okay? You buy your tickets, you're going on your way to the theater and you notice that there's a poster outside the theater for the movie that you're about to see. And your friend, the person accompanying you to the theater, they, they go up to that poster and they say, wow, that's a cool poster. They just, they just stand there, just, just staring at it. And you're waiting to, you know, you're like, oh, I wanna go in and see the movie. So you're like, hey, wh wh why don't we go in and see the movie? And, and your friend replies, no, no, I just wanna, I just wanna keep looking at this poster. Well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> well, your friend has clearly missed the entire point, right? They've missed the whole point. Because sure, the poster is cool, absolutely, but the point of the poster is to point to the movie, isn't it? It's to point you to, to the movie to get you to actually sit down and watch the full two-hour movie. And so early in, early in this chapter, the, the Samaritan woman you know, she, she didn't have sign faith. She had saving faith. And, you know, Jesus did perform a sign for her. Jesus told her things about her past that, that only someone sent by God could have known. And yet, she evolved past just being intrigued by the sign. She, she confessed that Jesus is the Christ, and she went and told everybody about him. 
But the Jews, on the other hand, they're, they're stuck in front of the poster. They're stuck in front of the poster. They're missing the point. They're not asking, can this be the Christ? Can this be the Messiah? They're asking, can we see another trick? Can we see another cool miracle? They honor Jesus as a magician, not as the Messiah. And so that's the backdrop for our story today. This is gonna be important, as we'll see. Let's get into the action. Read with me, John 4, verses 46 and 47. So Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus has come full circle in his ministry now. He, he began in Cana, turning the water to the wine. Then he went to Jerusalem. Then he went to Samaria. And now he's, he's back in Cana in the region of Galilee. But in verse 46, we meet someone new. We learn a few things about him. First, he's a father. And second, he's referred to as an official. I want to unpack this title. It's, it's an important title. So if you want to understand the story, we, we need to know who this is. So, so the New Testament, it was originally written in Greek. And if you were to look at this in the Greek, the word for king and the word for official here are, are very, very similar. They're actually derivative of each other. And so what that tells us is that this official, he wasn't just, just some random official, but he was actually more of a, a royal official. He worked for the king of Galilee at the time, a man named Herod Antipas. Now, Herod wasn't actually a king, even though he's referred to as a king. Technically, there was only one man who had the title of king, and that was a guy named Tiberius, the emperor of Rome, because Rome controlled the entire Mediterranean region at the time, and that included Israel and Judea. But Herod, Herod Antipas, was allowed to rule over this region, rule over Galilee, as long as he kept things under control, and he kept people paying their taxes to Rome. And so this official you can think of him as a nobleman, a royal official. Well, he worked for Herod, most likely. He worked for Herod. He probably lived in the royal palace. Maybe he was a politician. Maybe he, was, he managed some part of Herod's estate. Perhaps he was even royalty himself. We don't, we don't know for sure. But here's what we can be pretty sure of. As someone who worked under Herod, this guy almost certainly had wealth, and he almost certainly had power. And so we learn in verse 46 that, that while Jesus was in Cana, this royal official, he's, he's nearby, but he's not in the same city. He's in Capernaum, another city in Galilee, about 20 miles south of Cana. But this official has a problem, doesn't he? You see, his son is sick. And no doubt he's tried to use his wealth to save his son. He probably recruited some of the best healthcare available in Galilee at the time with his resources, but it wasn't enough. His son is sick and his son is, is dying. He's getting worse and worse. And this father, he's getting more and more desperate. But at some point, this official heard a rumor about a man named Jesus about a man who can turn water to wine, about a man who can take the hand of a paralytic and, and lift him up to his feet for the first time in decades. He's heard rumors about this man, and he's heard a rumor that this man is in Cana, 20 miles away right now. So what does he do? 
well being wealthy, he probably owned a horse. So we can put together some pieces and imagine that he probably saddled up his horse and he rode roughly six hours north from Capernaum to Cana. And finally, at the end of this journey, I just imagine this royal official just jumping off of his horse in front of Jesus, in front of all of his disciples. He's, he's exhausted from his ride. He's out of breath, but he, but he gets on his knees in front of Jesus, and with a voice full of fear, he says, Jesus, please come with me. Please come down with me to Capernaum. My son is sick. I, I don't think he has much time left. Please come with me. You know, the official's faith, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. He doesn't realize that Jesus, as the Son of God, doesn't have to be physically present to heal. Had he known who Jesus was in his entirety, he would know that Jesus could speak the word and his son would be healed down in Capernaum. We can contrast this with the faith of the centurion that we see in some of the other gospels. The Roman centurion, if you know that story, his servant was paralyzed But when Jesus offers to go home and heal the servant, the centurion goes, oh, no, 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 Jesus, it's okay. I'm under authority. When I tell one of my servants to go somewhere, he goes and he does it. I know that you have authority, so therefore just say the word and my servant will be healed. And then Jesus does as he he wishes. He heals him and praises the centurion for his incredible faith. So yes, this official's faith, perhaps it does still have some growing to do. Perhaps there's more about Jesus and who he is that this this official doesn't realize yet. But but to his credit, he just rode at least six hours to get to Jesus. And if nothing else, we see in this royal official a, a father who's desperate and is willing to do anything to save his son. But now Jesus is going to say something that's really going to put his faith to the test. Look at verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Man, what is Jesus doing? This this father, he's desperately worried for his little boy. He's rode all this way. This is his last hope, and he gets off his horse, and Jesus' response to him is, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. <laughs> Doesn't seem encouraging first at first, but, but let's take a closer look and examine what, what is Jesus doing in this statement. Well, the first thing you need to know is that when Jesus says you, he's not talking in the singular, he's talking in the plural. So Spanish, he's not, he's not saying tu, he's saying ustedes. Or if you're from the South, he's not saying you, he's saying y'all. Exactly, he's, he's speaking in the plural. The point is, Jesus is not just talking to this official, he's actually talking to the the Galilean people, perhaps even the Jewish people, in a broad prophetic sense. He's saying, unless you people believe, unless unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And here's the really interesting thing. I believe that in saying this, Jesus was accomplishing one thing, with the Galilean people at large, and another thing with his father. Does that make sense? Jesus, he's saying the same words, but they mean one thing for the Galileans, and they mean something more specific. They have a more uh, more specific uh, purpose and intent with this father. So so to the Galileans, to the Jewish people at large, Jesus is, is shaking his head. He's saying, all you guys have is sign faith. All you guys see me as is a magician. 
Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. When are you going to have saving faith? When are you going to look past the poster to see the movie, to see what all of this is pointing to, that I'm the Messiah, the Son of God? And Jesus isn't saying that it's wrong to believe in him on account of his signs. That's actually why he performed signs. He performed them so that people would believe in him. But again, the problem with the Galileans is that they're honoring Jesus as a magician, not as the Messiah. Their faith rested solely on Jesus' signs, but, but not as much on Jesus himself. Over and over again, the Jews, they, they miss the point about who Jesus is. It's a common theme throughout the Gospels. Here in this passage, they welcome Jesus for his signs, and what he, uh, they welcome him for his signs, but, but later in the book of John, they're going to welcome him because they think he's going to kick out the Romans for him. And 2,000 years later, today, there are still so many people who welcome Jesus for what they think he'll do for them. We see this in the prosperity gospel, a false gospel that's spreading all over the world. According to the prosperity gospel, Jesus will give you health and wealth if you, if you just have enough faith. And so that means that according to the prosperity gospel, Jesus is really just a means to a material end. Right? The ultimate end is, is material wealth and health, not Jesus. You know, if you ever find yourself in a church that promises that if you just pray hard enough or give enough that Jesus is going to give you health and wealth, I, I encourage you, I urge you to get as far away from that church as you can. But let me tell you another way that people sometimes welcome Jesus for just for what he can do for them. You know, often it happens something like this. Someone hears about the, the terrible reality of hell and they hear that we can be saved from hell through Jesus' death on the cross, and, and they respond with joy. They, they want to believe in it. And, you know, for many people in that moment, that marks the beginning of genuine faith. I mean, rightfully so, that, that, that the fear of hell should lead us to embrace Christ, the only one who can save us from that terrible reality. But sometimes, and perhaps some of you know people that are in this exact place, that, that faith ends up being nothing more than what I once heard a pastor call fire insurance. It's just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's just, you know, Jesus, I, I need you so I don't have to face this terrible reality, but, but after that, I'm, I'm kind of good to keep doing my own thing, to keep living life the way I want to. But that faith isn't actually resting on Jesus. It's resting on what he can do for you. It's get you out of hell and get you back to living however you want to. You know, I, I know many genuine Christians who did begin following Christ genuinely, because of a fear of hell, and rightfully so, you know, if, if you're not in Christ, I would encourage you to think long and hard about the, the realities of heaven and hell and the, the temporary offer we have in the gospel. But a faith that never goes beyond the fear of hell to loving Christ and following him, it's probably not a saving faith. It's just welcoming Jesus for what he can do for you rather than resting on Jesus for who he is because real faith rests and relies on Jesus himself. So let's go back to the royal official. I mentioned earlier that, that real faith rests on Jesus. I mentioned that, that the, 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 the words that Jesus spoke meant one thing to the Galileans but another thing to the royal official. So, so what did Jesus' words, what was the purpose that he intended for this royal official when he said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe? Why, why would he respond almost harshly, it would seem, 
to this father's request to heal his son? Well, I think it was a test. I think Jesus was testing this official. He had some faith. The official had some faith on Jesus on some level, but now Jesus is pressing in. He's applying some pressure to see what's really underneath the surface. Let's consider how the official could have responded to this test by Jesus. Well, for one thing, he could have just left. He could have just said, you know what, Jesus? I knew this was a bad idea. I rode all this way, and you know what? If you're just gonna play games with me, if you're not gonna come help me, I'm out of here. Maybe there's some doctor I haven't found yet in Capernaum who can help me out. Or at least I'd rather be spending my, last, my son's last hours with him than with you if you're just going to throw riddles at me. He could have attempted to bribe Jesus. If he was a royal official, he probably had wealth. Could have pulled out his purse and held out some coins and said, what will it cost you, Jesus? I'll pay, I'll pay anything you want. Whatever you need, come, come with me to Capernaum. I'll make you a rich man if you heal my son. Could have tried to bribe him. Perhaps he could have even tried to coerce Jesus, to use force. I mean, as a royal official, he may very well have had access to some level of military aid. He could have perhaps recruited some some local soldiers or some private guards to threaten Jesus and to force him to come to Capernaum and heal his son. But the royal official doesn't do any of that, does he? He doesn't give up. He doesn't try to bribe Jesus. He doesn't try to coerce him. No, look what he says in verse 49. He says, sir, come down before my child dies. Sir, come down before my child dies. Because here we see this father hasn't come to Jesus for entertainment. He hasn't come for a magician's tricks. He doesn't even try to defend himself to Jesus. He just humbly asks Jesus one more time, Jesus, please, my son is sick. Please come heal him. He presses in because all he can think about right now is his little boy at home with this fever. The official has passed the first test. He hasn't given up yet, but, but here comes the second test. I want to read the, the first half of verse 50. Jesus said to him, go your son will live. Let's stop there. So, go, your son will live. Those are the, that's the test, those five words. That's the second and perhaps the most difficult test that Jesus gives this royal official. And maybe you're wondering, how is that a test? Jesus just gave him what he wanted. He just said, go, your son has been healed. And I mean, didn't Jesus in that very moment heal his son? Yes, he did. But did the official know that? Did the official know beyond a shadow of a doubt that his son was physically healed? Well, no, he doesn't. At least he doesn't have physical proof that his son is healed. Jesus didn't open some cool portal and show him his son, you know, resting up in bed, drinking his Gatorade or something. No, he doesn't know. And just a moment ago in verse 49, the official insisted for the second time that Jesus travel with him back to Capernaum because at this point, we still see that this official believes Jesus has to be physically present in order to heal. That is the working assumption the royal official has. And so in that sense, Jesus did not tell his father what he wanted to hear. His father wanted to hear, all right, let's go. Let me, let me grab a horse. We'll, we'll, we'll go straight there. I'll meet you in Capernaum and we'll heal your son. That's what the official wanted to hear. He didn't say that. He said, no. He said, go, your son will live. No proof. No receipt, nothing but his word. That's all this official has to go off of. 
This was the final test and perhaps the most difficult. Make no mistake, this was a test of this official's faith. Does he believe Jesus enough to turn around, take the six-hour journey back to Capernaum, just on Jesus' word that his son was better? Knowing that if, if Jesus was lying or misleading him, his son would die and there would be nothing he could do. Does the official have that kind of faith in Jesus? You know, I have to imagine that if there was ever a moment where this official felt tempted to bribe or coerce Jesus, it was probably right then when Jesus said those words. But something incredible happens instead. We see real faith emerge. We see real faith emerge in this official that rests on Jesus himself. Let's read verse 50 in its entirety. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Isn't that incredible? He, he didn't ask for a sign. He didn't ask for proof. He, he didn't even say another word. As far as we're aware, there's nothing recorded. He just goes on his way believing that Jesus, what Jesus spoke was true and would come to pass. The father's fear of losing his son was replaced with faith, a simple trusting faith that rested in Jesus himself. Christian, what do you fear? What do you fear? Are you anxious about the future? Are you worried for what's gonna come tomorrow or the day after that? Because Jesus says something to you too. He says, look at the birds of the air. Your heavenly father feeds them. And are you not of more value than they? Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Fearful Christian, believe what Jesus has said and rest in him. Perhaps you fear that a day is gonna come when your sin is just gonna be too, too much for God. Perhaps you fear the day will come when you out-sin the cross, you've You've put yourself beyond forgiveness, beyond the ability to be saved by Christ. That God might one day remove his forgiveness from you and leave you with judgment. What does Jesus say to you? He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never cast out. So Christian, if that's you, believe what Jesus has promised and rest in him. He will never cast you out. Or perhaps you just feel weighed down by the brokenness of this world. Jesus says to you, behold, I am making all things new. Believe what Jesus has spoken. Rest on his promise. He is making all things new and one day he will return. And then he will permanently make all things new. Let's see what happens next in verse 51. As the official was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour where he, when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. You know what's remarkable about this? I don't know if you caught this, but the official, he's going back to Capernaum when his servant meets him on the road and tells him that his son is recovering. 
And then he asks him, so when did he start recovering? And, and the servant tells him, yesterday afternoon. Do you know what that means? It means a full day has gone by since Jesus' interaction with the official. It's, it's, been a, it's been a whole day. That means that this, this, this official, the royal official, he didn't gallop home to Capernaum at full speed to confirm Jesus' word, to confirm that his son was getting better. He actually stayed the night in Cana. Why? Why did he stay the night in Cana? Well, we don't know why. We can speculate. You know, perhaps it was something completely out of his control. Perhaps his horse was, was tired. Perhaps it was already dark and it would have been dangerous to ride at night. We, we don't know exactly what the reason is. I like to think that maybe his faith in Jesus was, was so strong that when, when Jesus said, hey, your son's better, the royal official said, you know what? I know my son is better. So why rush home? I'm gonna take care of some business in Cana. I'm gonna finish some things up. I'm not gonna overwork my horse. We're just gonna st- spend the night here and I know that tomorrow morning I'm gonna wake up, I'm gonna go home, I'm gonna see my son alive and well. But either way, on his way home, the servants confirm what he already knew that his son began to recover the moment Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And this is what it looks like to rest in Jesus himself. Um, you know, I texted Pastor Michael earlier this week to ask him if we could sing that, that last hymn that we sung, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. It's, it's one of my favorites and I wanna go back and read a little bit of it because I think it like so perfectly encapsulates this idea of, of, of faith, of resting in Jesus himself. And I think it really beautifully sums up the transformation we saw in this royal official's life. Here are the lyrics. It's, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus and to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise and to know, thus says the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace, to trust him more. You know, by the end of this story, the, the, the official knew exactly how sweet it was to trust in Jesus, didn't he? Just to rest upon his promise that his son would be healed. And in a little bit, we'll, we'll talk about what that reunion looked like when this father was reunited with his son alive and well. But maybe as you hear the story, there's a part of you that's, that's thinking to yourself, you know, sure, it's It's sweet to trust in Jesus when he heals your son, but what about when he doesn't? What about when the healing doesn't come? Because Jesus hasn't looked me in the eye and told me that he's going to heal me. He hasn't promised me that he's gonna heal my brother or sister or mother or father or son or daughter. He hasn't promised that he's going to take away this burden or this grief or this pain that I am carrying with me. And in one sense, you are right. We can't read this story and walk away thinking that since, the, since Jesus gave this royal official his son back, that he will do the exact same for us. He can. He certainly can, and he might. And so, absolutely, we, we pray to God and we ask him that his will be done, and we ask him to intervene and to heal in the lives of our loved ones. But at the end of the day, God is God. It is his will that he answers to, not, not ours. But I want to go back to that hymn, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. I want to actually tell you a little bit more about that hymn. So uh, it was written by a woman named Louisa Stead in the late 1800s. And uh, I want to share what led to her writing that hymn. Because it might surprise you. You see, one day Louisa 
And her husband, William, and their four-year-old daughter, Lily, were uh, at a beach in Long Island, New York, for a picnic. And they heard a cry coming from the water. And so Luisa's husband, William, he, he raced to the shore. He saw that there was a, a boy drowning out in the water, and he swam out to save him. But uh, both he and the boy drowned in the process, leaving Luisa and her daughter uh, without a father, without a husband. And believe it or not, it was that terrible, terrible afternoon that led her to write the hymn that we just sang, "'Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus." It wasn't some miraculous story of, of a last-minute healing in just the nick of time. No, she wrote that hymn after she lost her husband, after her daughter lost her father. She wrote it and she grieved tragic and unexpected loss. You know, it's easier to sing those words when your son gets healed, isn't it? It's a lot harder to hear them and to sing them when your husband passes away or perhaps when, when you wake up to another morning of chronic pain or when your prayer isn't answered, at least not in the way that you want it to be. And yet in those moments, those words, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus are are perhaps more true and more important than ever. Christian, whatever mix of, of blessing and suffering that God ordains for you in this life, and believe me, you'll, you'll have some of both, it is sweet to trust in Jesus. And here's why. Because even though in Cana that day, Jesus saw this father's joy to see his son healed, Jesus knew that the day was coming when he, the perfect son of God, would be on a cross and there would be no last minute salvation for him. There would be no miraculous intervention at the last moment to save him from his death on the cross. No, that moment wouldn't come with him, come for him. He would hang on the cross and, and he would die for us. Because he came to the cross to save us, not just from physical sickness, not just from from fevers, but from spiritual death, from spiritual sickness. He went to the cross so that we would no longer be enemies of God, but, but rather adopted sons and daughters. And so, do you know why it's sweet to trust in Jesus? It's sweet to trust in Jesus because if he would do so much for you on the cross, if he would suffer so much for you on the cross to purchase you, you can trust that for every day of your life, he will be faithful to you. And he will give you grace for every struggle that comes. He'll give you precisely the grace you need to keep going. Miracle or no miracle. Healing or no healing. He will be with you. Real faith rests on Jesus himself. There's a little more to this story, though. In the second half of verse 53, we get this short epilogue. It says, and he himself believed in all his household. Now, I just imagine this scene. This boy is, is waiting excitedly for his father to return home and, and tell him that he's feeling better. But his father says, son, actually, I already know that you're better. And let me tell you about my trip to Cana. You're never going to believe what happened. You're never going to believe what I saw and what I heard in Cana. And then he told his, his household, he told his wife and his children, perhaps he had some servants as well, and, and they all believe 
They all believed, not just, uh, not just the father who saw Jesus, but his son and, and, and the wife, the whole household. They, they put their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, the, the story earlier in chapter four of, of the Samaritan woman, it, you know, it's crazy. She believes in Jesus, and she goes and she tells everybody in the town about what Jesus has done for her. And as a result of that, the entire town believes in Jesus. And, and here we have a father, and, and he believes in Jesus, and so he, he tells his whole household about him. And, and then the whole household, his whole family believes in Jesus. And I guess the point I'm making is, man, tell people what Jesus has done for you. Tell people your story. The cool thing about sharing your testimony is that like, no one can really like, argue with you because it's your testimony. Tell people what God has done for you because you have no idea how God could use your testimony to reach, who knows, your friends, your coworkers, your family. The story of the official we read this morning asks a question that demands an answer from every single one of us in this room. Whether you call yourself or a Christian or not, and that, that question is, where does your faith rest? Where does your faith rest? Remember that real faith rests on Jesus himself. Let's pray together. Jesus, it is sweet to trust you. It is sweet to trust you, Jesus. Whatever comes to us in this life, Lord, whatever prayers are answered, whatever prayers remain unanswered, whatever things that you protect us from that we might not even know we would have faced otherwise to whatever burdens and struggles you allow us to carry according to your sovereign will, we know that it is sweet to trust you. Because if Jesus, if you endured the cross on our behalf, if you went willingly and joyfully to your death to reconcile us to God, how much more will you give us everything we need in this life? How much more will you not simply keep us from trouble and keep us from burdens, but rather, Lord, be present with us in them and give us the grace we need minute by minute, day by day, year by year to continue trusting in you. God, I pray that all of us I pray, Lord, that you would just grow our faith. Lord, I pray that we would not be so quick just to look to other, other saviors, other idols. I pray, Lord, our first instinct would be to look to you, Jesus Christ, because you, you Lord, you love us. You've promised to be faithful to us. And you've promised that you'll present us to the Father full and complete. So God, I just pray that you would be with us. Help us to trust you more day by day. I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.